Well, let me uh, begin with the obvious this morning. The world, as you know, is directly affected by how each of us and all of us live together in it. It's shaped by us. And this agency that we have is why most people, high percentage of people, actually do care what other people do or don't do, right? Most people, whether they're religious or not, have ten or more commandments that they would love to happily install on the courthouse lawn. Whether they're religious or not, and let's be honest, people aren't becoming less religious, it's just that politics is becoming their religion. But you know, if you can't happily install your ten commandments on the courthouse lawn, you can settle for Facebook or the comment section of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. right? And in this sense, virtually everyone believes in sin and righteousness if only by other names. Of course, we know that an increasing number of people, at least in in our world or in our land, prefer not to appeal to any objective basis for moral certitude, though they seem quite certain, right? For example, if Homer thinks that Ned should reduce, reuse, and recycle, can he really justify why Ned should care how much plastic is in the ocean? What does Ned really owe the future even? He's only got a few decades to live. What does he owe yellowfin tuna? Which he doesn't eat anyway, and he can't really tell the difference between that and a king mackerel. Why? Why should I care? Ultimately, if we want a just world, ideas like equality and fairness, cooperation and responsibility, they require a compelling why if you interrogate them. They require meaning and purpose. I just read a beautiful article remembering the author Frederick Buechner, who I hope has influenced some of you in your faith. He influenced me in mine. I hope that he will continue to be influenced uh, and, you know, an influence to others in coming generations. But he died this past week, and um, this article inspired no shortage of atheist commenters to throw heavy shade on Christianity. One mentioned that Jesus was right about one thing. There's one thing. The golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But here's the question, and I had to resist the temptation to reply in the comments, which I generally resist the opportunity. I just wanted to answer, ask the question, why? Why was he right about that? Why is such an important question, isn't it? I know some of you parents are thinking, oh, if my kids could just stop asking why. How many of you have heard of a cosmological constant? Any scientists in the room or people who like reading such things? Beginning with Einstein, there are now roughly 20 calculations in the known universe that if they were off by even point zero 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 one, nothing would exist as it does. Nothing would exist. For example, the mass of an electron, which I'm sure almost none of you think about the mass of an electron in any given week, Right? or even the strength of gravity. You walk around taking it for granted, but there is a particular calculation to gravity that if it were off by .0001, you might fly away, or in fact, this world would never have existed. And here's an interesting thing. The atheist cosmologist Brian Greene, he says that all of these numbers appear to be fine-tuned. The popular astrophysicist, who a lot of people know his name more, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he talks about... Another thing that's observed, an apparent abrupt limit to the energy of cosmic rays as they travel through the universe. 
Again, you don't think about cosmic rays traveling through the universe in any given week. Most of you don't, I would think. And he says this, he says, everything else we've measured kind of tails off like a bell curve, tails off. But somehow or another, these just hit what looks like a boundary. They hit a boundary. And let me tell you how they're willing to explain this. They would prefer to accept the possibility that the world as we know it, in these constants, it might be an elaborate simulation designed on a supercomputer by someone in some other world or in our very future on this hyper-advanced supercomputer, hyper-advanced technology, and that that's how this works. It's mathematical. It's scientific. That's right. We're just sims. We're sims. Maybe we're the work of a kid in a garage somewhere in the year 4079. Why believe such a thing? Because if instead there is a God who has fine-tuned the universe, we'd have to concern ourselves with more than crunching the numbers and peering into the nethers of the cosmos with a $10 billion telescope. As cool as that is. We'll have to think about how we too are designed. We'll have to think about how we too are meant to live in the world. This is why Jesus taught us that we, in our obvious limitation, that we are meant to live in a posture of deference, of moral deference, following wisdom and instruction that we've been given, the numbers, so to speak, that have been assigned. It's not a list, it's an ethic, it's a pattern, it's a posture. And that's what we call obedience. Obedience is how we live when we don't presume to know everything, part one, but we know everything matters. Let me say that again. Obedience is how we live when we don't presume to know everything, but we do know that everything matters. The opposite of that posture and that pattern and that ethic is sin. If there's a God, then there is a way that things are supposed to be, and sin is the human violation of that way, willful or not. Of course, the difference between the strength of gravity and the weight of sin is that gravity isn't free to violate its design, is it? But we are, and we do. We break the rules that hold the fabric of the world together. Relationships, institutions, you name it. Our sin penetrates that. We defy the pattern of being the heart, soul, mind, and strength caretakers of our fellow creatures and of the world that God loves, the world that God intends to redeem, the world that he created good with a purpose and a meaning, which gets us to Hebrews 12, the last half of it, 15 through 29. Here's the question, the questions. If this is what's happening in the world, the pattern's being broken, the ethics being defied and ignored, how should God feel about this violation? What should he do? What has he done? What will he do? And where does that leave us? Hebrews 12 reflects on this, and it doesn't reflect on it abstractly or even philosophically, although that's part of it. Hebrews 12 reflects on this historically. Historically. First, we get Esau. Not a very popular guy, right? He's the grandson of Abraham who traded his future for the present. 
He traded his inheritance, which affected lots of people, all of his progeny, for what? Soup. For one meal. It was more than a personal loss. As I said, it affected everybody. And here's the thing. Esau is a historical, what we'd say, an example or archetype of how sin works. And so in the context of this overall message that we get in Hebrews today, the pastor who is writing this, he's essentially saying, the grace of God is our inheritance. It's our inheritance. It's ours by virtue of our belonging to God, by virtue of a gift from God, not earned. So don't settle for soup. If you hear one thing that I say today, maybe just take that one. Don't settle for soup. That's part of this lesson. But more largely, don't actively reject grace and forfeit your inheritance because of your immediate desires or the pressures that you're facing and will face and will continue to face and have faced and shape so much of the life and the mindset that we live in today. Because the truth is, willingly, willfully caving in, it's going to put down, as he talks about, bitter roots in our common life. It's going to make it easier to make our lives harder. It's going to make it easier to reject the grace of God and to trivialize it. And what do we have left if we reject a gift? Because earning it isn't an option. So then in verse 18, the author of this great sermon, he wants to bring his hearers back to a memory, the memory of a mountain. Now, it's not a memory that they had themselves, that they experienced, but it actually belonged to their shared story, and it belongs to ours. The details, the imagery, these, they're vivid, they're gripping, and they're meant to be. But there's also another mountain in this. This is important. The, con- the contrast is important. There's another mountain for them to remember, that one that's closely related to the first in the story. The first matters to the second, and the second to the first mountain. But the difference between the two and the distance are meaningful. They mean everything. Now, quick review We talked about this beginning with Hannah's sermon a couple weeks ago. Who's listening to this for the first time? Well, this matters. His audience are people dangling in the middle of two, let's call them cultural pressures or realities, Judaism and Hellenism and what's going on in the Greco-Roman world, right? But it's, it's not just, they're not living in this space where those two overlapped. In many ways, they are already something else. They are rapidly becoming social pariahs. They can't fit with either one based on what's fundamental to those two ways of life, so they are marginalized by even their own families. We got to get this in our gospel reading uh, last week, right? Jesus came and it inherently brought division because it brought a crisis of belief and understanding. Jesus said this would be part of following him, so that's what they're dealing with. And this letter written to them, it draws on, you read the whole thing, 32 Old Testament connections that bear witness to Jesus, that, bear, that are trying to help them understand what they have in Jesus. And you could say the point of Hebrews is summed up in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So in other words, lean out, or lean in, not out. They knew that if they allowed themselves to lighten up and to drift back in one direction or the other, there'd be a payoff 
right? It might reduce the shame that they were bringing on their, their family or their town. It might allow them to blend back into this patronage system. The way it worked then, it really, really mattered. Uh, you know, if you're going to stay afloat socially and even financially, you had, to, you had to play the game big time. Because faith in Jesus was going to complicate all of that. So very tempting to just kind of water it down, just kind of drift, not pay much attention to it, And so while the bowl of soup is simmering before them, like Esau, the preacher of of this letter is reminding them of their birthright, their birthright, their inheritance, their hope of the bigger picture. So what he does is he gives them, as I said, a contrast, and then he gives them a call. The contrast is between the two mountains. You haven't come to the dreadful mountain of Sinai, where your sin looms so large in light of God's holiness. You have come, though, to the joyful mountain to the mountain of grace where God's grace looms large in the light of Jesus. You've come to a new mediator like Moses and like the priesthood. And you've come to a new and better and once for all sacrifice in his own blood. In other words, the story has culminated in this new way, in this new mountain. So the call he's saying is keep listening to the voice from Zion, this new Jerusalem this new reality, and listen by faith. He calls them to be grateful. He calls them to be worshipful. He calls them to normal Christian worship, which is in reverence and awe. It's a big deal. It cannot be domesticated, this purifying power of God. So let's talk about Sinai for just a few minutes. Fire, darkness, Gloom, storms, and battle horns. Drawing from Exodus 19 and 20 and from Deuteronomy 4 and 5 and 9, he's appealing to his hearers' sense of touch and of sight and of hearing. It's comprehensive, it's holistic. At Sinai, God is actually, through all of these things, reflecting reality back to them. A reality they could not see. Back to the people he had just rescued from Egypt. And their limited understanding at this point at at Sinai, it's said that Moses has been up on the mountain too long. Who says? They say. And so they did what they saw in Egypt. They made a golden calf, right, as as a new way of kind of mediating God's presence. Well, we'll do this thing, and then God might be obligated to do this thing. Meanwhile, God's with Moses up on the mountain. So they made this. And in that moment on Sinai, they are confronted with divine reality. What they're doing means what it affects. They get to see sin as God sees it. There's a pulling back of the curtain. Sin as a deep, dark blindness, as a destructive fire, as a storm, as a frontal assault met with a horn of war. They are getting to see how dreadful God's holiness is when it is provoked by sin and the powers of hell that are at work in people to unmake people. That's what they're getting to see in this moment. And don't make the mistake of believing that this is merely a picture of a God who is just kind of blowing his top and throwing a holy temper tantrum, right? As though uh, that's just because people are breaking the rules that he prefers. No, this is a see and feel kind of picture of reality, of what the confrontation of holiness with sin looks like when you take the blinders off, 
when you stop dumbing it down, when you stop watering it down, and you really get to see what a holy God looks like in confrontation with sin, with what it does to the world God loves. This is the true nature of things. God's love for the good for us and the world is confronting its fundamental threat that happens to be in us. The force that corrupts desire, the force, the very force that pollutes the world that God loves. How should God feel about that? Think about it. If you want to understand or even test the thing, expose it to its opposite. That's when its nature is most clear. A true opposite is opposition. So don't be flippant, you know, for example, to them. Don't be so flippant as to even let the cows that you touch touch this holy mountain. That's the distinction I want you to see right there. It's a point made. Now you might be thinking, and I get it, you might be thinking, oh, I don't like this picture of God. I get that. I I really, really do. But here's the real question. Do you like justice? Do you like the idea that there is an objective rightness, righteousness that can and will confront all this injustice and suffering that we don't like, that results from human ignorance, pride, and power? Do you hope there is a strong and capable response to a spiritual war being waged against humanity that we see playing out in virtually every arena of life? Do we want someone objective to respond? Do we want someone to take it as seriously as it is? Because we don't, we aren't capable of taking it as seriously as it is. Do we want someone to deal in reality? If so, then we want a God who reveals what he sees so that we can see it too. And that's what's happening here. But Sinai isn't the whole picture of how God feels about sin and about us. That's great news. It was at Sinai, actually, that God began to give a way in which people could respond to His holiness and His otherness. He revealed this, but from Sinai, He provided a way for them to relate to to Him. That, as the author of Hebrews says, it would serve as a shadow of the reality to come. He gave them the tabernacle. He gave them the sacrificial system, practices that would continually invite them to participate in a relationship with Him, to actually demonstrate, this is so important, to to demonstrate their embrace of God's reality on God's terms without qualification. Now, you, you know that the pagan nations, they offered their sacrifices, they even offered their children to appease this impersonal deity's anger or to try to get the deity to do for them what they needed, whether it had to do with their crops or their children or anything else, trying to motivate the deity. But for Israel, this is so important. We're telling the story the right way. The offering of livestock and of their grain and of their wine, these things that, that were essential to life, that sustained life and the quality of life, this, the offering of these things was an act of confession toward reconciliation. It was an acknowledgement that sin costs something. It costs us something. But in all cases, this is so vitally important, the sacrifice they were called to give was something God had given to them in the first place. They'd been given a gift to then offer and to say, we want your reality on your terms. It was an act of the heart more than it was of the hands. An act of relationship. David, 
we know, cuts away the ceremonial fat of this, really, in Psalm 51. He got it through many toils and snares. He said this, he said, you, you will not delight in the sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Sacrifices repeated over and over by flawed priests. These were a temporary provision, but they were telling the same story. They were telling the larger story. Another priest, though, was coming. And with him, a new mountain where the holiness of God would be ours to experience. Let's read that in beginning in verse 22. He says, but you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. So he's contrasting the, the, the vivid picture they, they would, would see in, Zion, or in Sinai with Zion. You've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are, are enrolled in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And you've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than, word than the blood of Abel. Scriptures say that the blood of Abel cried out to God. The blood of Jesus cries out to God for us. A better word. The unapproachable God has come to us, for us. This is the story we're, we're telling. God himself takes on servanthood to be our mediator, where neither Moses nor every, any priest after him would suffice to do everything that was necessary. He confronts sin, Jesus does, by resisting it in his own holy life and then suffering its consequences in his own holy death. And in this way, God's seeming impersonal response to sin becomes very, very personal. Darkness falls on Jerusalem. An earthquake announces the chaos of and the confrontation with sin. A curtain in the temple, this holy curtain dividing, you're keeping the holy of holies away from everybody else. It is torn in two. And after that, a deafening silence of Jesus in the tomb for three days. And then rumblings of a resurrection. And then feet pounding the earth to run and to see, and a new creation is born of the resurrection of the Son of God. The future comes into view, and there's a new mountain on the horizon, and it's our mountain. It's our mountain. And so now it's celebration. And he's pointing them to this celebration to think about grace and think about how they're going to respond to it. He says, look to the mountain. Look to the celebration. Look to the festal gathering. And here's the thing. By the time they're reading this aloud, listening to what's being, been written to them, the earthly Jerusalem as they knew it, Zion, Mount Zion, is in a heap. It's a rubble. It has faced the retribution of Rome. And what does he say? Don't be afraid. The heavenly Zion stands. It's secure. It's ours. It's our home. It's our destination. It's our inheritance. In this comparison that he makes, the contrast between Sinai and Zion, he wants to remind them that now, though God is no less holy than he has ever been and ever will be, they can approach him in faith through Jesus, who was faithful, the faithful mediator of this new covenant 
And what has Jesus done, unlike Esau? He has preserved the inheritance, and now he has given it to us. So how should they, how should we respond? This is the question. This is what he's dealing in because of what they're facing. And maybe what they've forgotten. He says, see that you do not refuse him. He's speaking. His blood is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on heaven, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. If you reject the gift because the truth is you can't do anything to earn it, you reject the gift, what's left? Make no mistake, God has not changed. But He has provided. He's revealed Zion as His loving answer to the truth about Sinai. The truth hasn't changed. But it is met with God's provision and His grace. He's given His people grace to live in His presence. But they need to remain open. They need to remain vigilant, especially if they're going to endure in this life. The truth is, we can all find ourselves treating grace like a, like a given instead of a gift. We can lose sight of the fact that it's an un, un, indescribably wonderful and undeserved expression of divine love and mercy. It's how God feels about us. We can lose the sense of its power. We can lose the sense of its necessity. And we can leave our call to gratitude and awe and active worship somewhere in the corner. And bitter roots go down, and they spread. So we need to be vigilant and renewed. And this pastor of Hebrews, he wants his hearers to just imagine God sifting the world again. Truth is, he has sifted, he is sifting, and he will sift. Shaking. They lived between its first shaking, some sense on the cross, and the next one upon his return. And so do we. In the shaking, the things without anchor in reality, in divine truth, they will be exposed as having no foundation at all in this cornerstone that God has laid in Zion. Nothing that will endure another stark confrontation with inescapable reality is going to last. After the fire cleanses and everything finally shakes out on God's terms, only what's real can last and will remain. So Hebrews 12 takes them and it takes us to the edge. It's where we're meant to go, showing us what's always at stake. We actually live at that edge in our worship every Sunday morning. Do you know that? He shows us that rejecting the everything that God offers us really does leave us with nothing. So in our worship, the question is, should we be afraid? Is God a consuming fire? No, we shouldn't be afraid. And yet, yes, God is a consuming fire. It's the paradox we live in, the beauty we live in. We should be grateful and bowled over by His grace and His power and His love and His justice. It is fiery, folks. And thank God that it is. We should be staggered by the willingness of a holy God to come to unholy people like you and me. We should be staggered by the fact that God promises to make all things new. Because they don't feel that way right now. This is why we're here, as I said, in reverence and in awe. This is what we do. We are confronted with the depths of our sin in light of the heights of God's holy love. It's why we confess. It's why we do it together. It's why we actually do it for the world. 
and not just ourselves. Every Sunday, Sinai comes into view in our worship, and it should, but not without a staggering participation in Zion. With all the saints and with all the angels, in the true holy of holies. That's what it means to remember. That's what it means to not refuse him who is speaking. When we consecrate this bread and this wine and we receive it together in faith, it is a holy act of gratitude. It is of thanksgiving. It's why it's so central to our worship. Great thanksgiving, eucharisteo, the Eucharist. It's what it is. That's why we take it so seriously. Every Sunday we hold out our hands to a holy God and we get to touch him. We get to taste his goodness. And it's nothing short of a foretaste of that festal gathering that awaits us. So received in faith, received in humility and in deference and in obedience, it's a participation in the city of the living God. Nothing less. The heavenly Jerusalem with innumerable angels and the assembly of the firstborn in heaven. We're part of something bigger. It matters. There is meaning. There is purpose. There is design. And the design is good. And we get a foretaste of our inheritance that Jesus has given to us. So let's listen. Let's come. Let's touch. Let's taste. Let's believe. Let's be in awe. Let's be grateful again for what we are being given. For our God is a consuming fire. Don't be afraid. Let's come together. Lord, we thank you this morning for this invitation. Help us to say yes. Help us to receive. Help us to do that in faith and in deference and in trust and in love and in a belief, Lord, that you are holding all things together and that when you sift and when you shake, the good will remain, and that's what we want. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh,